Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Helen Bernard. Helen has a number of roles. She's involved with Pro Bono Economics and the Joseph Rowntree Foundation and is a leading poverty and cost of living expert. You might even have seen Helen appearing on TV recently pretty regularly. The timing of this conversation couldn't have been better. We record on the day that Prime Minister Liz Truss has sacked her Chancellor and started to reverse some of the tax cuts announced in the mini budget and all of this has an impact on public services and the ability of public services to fulfill their purpose so we have a lot to talk about helen has a new book coming out called want it's part of a series that's styled as a new beverage report and it's a fantastic read i've been lucky enough to get an advanced copy and i've read it and it's to be highly recommended it gives historical context to the current cost of living crisis and examines the real drivers of poverty. We also talk about the role of government, local and national in combating poverty and the cost of living crisis and also what level things should be done at. So there's a good part of the conversation about devolution, which is rather topical. And finally, we talk about the importance of building coalitions to get things done. So this means that quite often, if you want to make sustainable progress, you will have to collaborate with people with whom you do not agree on absolutely everything. But that does not mean that there are not areas where you can work with people and make progress. And this is particularly important now, as we seem to be getting quite binary in the way we approach public discourse, where people are either on side with us or not and it's very binary and that is not a route to any sort of sustainable progress so let's get over and hear from helen helen a really warm welcome onto 
the podcast. Um, just to give listeners some context, we're talking on the 14th of October, just after the Prime Minister Liz Truss has made a statement. So today, quite a lot's happened, which I think is all quite relevant to our discussion. Normally, these conversations are not political at all, but it's impossible to avoid some of the backdrop context here, I'm sure you would agree. So the Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, has been well, either sacked or resigned, depending on whose letter you refer to, whether his or the Prime Minister's response. Jeremy Hunt has been appointed Chancellor. The Prime Minister's made a statement reversing the cancellation of the corporate tax increase. And she also mentioned in that statement that public spending would have to grow more slowly than had been planned. And this is bearing in mind that the current plans for public spending were earlier in the year when inflation wasn't so high. So that's the context that we're up against here. So um, I just would love to get your thoughts on what has, has just happened before we get into our uh, our conversation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is extraordinary to just watch it happen, isn't it? There was it feels like kind of the tomorrow's pub quiz questions yeah. are being written today. I think in terms of kind of what it means for our economy and our public services. On So in on one hand, it does resolve something. So it, they have done another U-turn on corporation tax that will bring them in about 18 billion pounds. But if you look at the mini budget, it was a kind of it was in two halves, wasn't it? You've got the energy package, which is temporary spending. And what most people have said is that the markets would be fairly relaxed about paying for that by borrowing because it's not permanent spending. Then you've got all the tax cuts. The biggest tax cut is the 1P reduction in income tax. Mm. Now, that is the one that they has not yet been mentioned. Certainly, there's no indication they're going to row back on that. So if we assume that one stays in place and we assume the national insurance cancellation, national insurance rise stays in place, that definitely leaves them with a hold. They need to reduce spending more on the 31st of October. Yeah. And I think that then leads us to the question, how are they going to do that? And there's kind of three ways, aren't there? So they can do something with benefits. So we've already seen, we saw them floating this idea, you only raise benefits with earnings, which would be a real terms, the biggest permanent cut ever to benefits because of where inflation is. So that would be incredibly painful politically. I think it would cause them no end of trouble, but they yeah. could go there. Or they cut departmental spending. So they reopen the spending review and they say, not only are we not going to compensate you for inflation, but we're going to do more cuts. That, again, politically incredibly difficult. I mean, you think about the NHS backlog. Is the new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, former health secretary, is he really going to cut the health budget? Well, he, he also is on the record pressing the government pretty hard to commit to extra spending in terms of staffing in the NHS and things like that. So this is a difficult yeah, it's, it, exactly. They've also they've committed to defence spending rising to three percent of GDP. The defence secretary has apparently made it clear he will resign if they don't keep to that. So you can easily see them saying, right, health and defence are ring fenced. Within benefits, they've already guaranteed pensions go up with a triple lock. That's the biggest chunk of the welfare budget. So you kind of think what's left and it is yeah. local governments. It's education. And again, it's hard to imagine they're going to really do serious cuts to that. And it's all the other departments who are, which are much smaller. Think that, but things like the uh, levelling up, Department yeah. of Housing and levelling up. 
So I think if I was sitting in local government today or as somebody who depends on local government services, I would be feeling incredibly nervous. Now, the third thing they can do is to try and get the cuts from the less visible capital spending. So that's what happened when the Cameron Osborne government wanted to make big cuts. They started with things like the capital budgets because day by day individuals aren't going to notice that so much. But obviously, if you want to go for growth, cutting infrastructure spending and capital spending is an incredibly bad idea. But those are the options they seem. So it's it's funny, you know, today feels it's such a day of high drama, but you get to the end of it and think, I'm not sure any of the serious questions are actually answered yet. I I completely agree. And look, I really appreciate you taking time just to give your views on that. So we're we're going to step back a little bit now and we're going to talk about more strategic things, I hope, which are continuing issues. So I in my introduction to this, I introduced who, who you were, but it would be great just to hear in your own words, because I know that you have quite a portfolio of things that you do. And, um, and I think I should say as well, actually, that people will probably have seen you on TV quite recently in, you know, your your taxi to the TV studios, which I don't know if that makes you in the in the anti-growth coalition or what. But yeah. well, and you, I mean, you're you're a podcaster, so you're I am. Yeah, you're I right mean, in I'm, there. We're all in it. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> Although I'd like to say that my taxis are going to Leeds, not from North London. So. I will okay, make well, a that, pitch that for not might, being part of. It might let you off the hook. But <laughs> I, I, so, so yes. So um, the thing, so the two main, two things I do mainly. So I work for the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, which is an organisation that focuses on poverty um, and social change. And I also work for Pro Bono Economics, which is an economic think tank that focuses on civil society and well-being. So I am kind of my background is as a researcher then there's a kind of policy type person and I've become very interested in social change and how you create change sustainably. And uh, I've also am about to have a book published next week, in fact, 20th of October, which is it's called Want and it's part of a series which is called Giants, a new beverage report. So the idea being it's a big anniversary for the beverage report, which was the underpinning of our welfare state so it's a good time to reevaluate the giants he talked about slaying and say well have we managed it and if not what are our modern jack the giant slayers yes indeed i am lucky enough to have seen an advanced copy of it so i i have read it and i've absolutely loved it and i've got some specific questions about it but just in your own words what would you say the key messages coming through from your book are so i think For me, the heart of it is that we're in. So we're in a period of history where I think we're in a massive change. So there's one of the people that I quote in passing is a historian economist called Carlotta Perez, who talks about the way that big technological shifts kind of play out across societies. And she talks about the phases you go through when there is a massive technological shift. There's a kind of there's excitement, then there's pessimism and then all the current social norms break down and your institutions can no longer cope. And then you remake social norms for the new age with so, with populist leaders in there towards the end as well. Yeah. I, just, I remember reading that. bit. Yeah. Yeah. So during that period of disruption. So you could see. So if you look back to the 1920s and 30s, so that period of industrialization, so big economic changes, 
the kind of end of the stability of the Edwardian era. And then you had post-war is where you could see those new social norms being established. And beverage and the welfare state were a big part of that. Now, I so I suppose my starting point is I think we are going through one of those now. You know, we're shifting to a digital low carbon era. But a lot of our institutions were born in the industrial age and they are they've done very well. But I think that they are creaking. But also, I guess that poverty, people living in want hasn't gone away, but it looks very different today to the kind of people and situations that you would have thought about even 20 years ago. So at the very start of your book, you talk about the conditions of being free from want, inverted commas, so a secure home, steady work, being able to cover bills, giving children a good start for life, good mental and physical health, respect and personal dignity, and then feeling part of society. I must admit, until quite recently, I'd just taken it for granted that whatever flavour of policymaking or politics you had, whether it was socialism, centre ground, through to one nation conservatism, that all of these things were taken for granted that that was what a government would strive to give people. I'm not feeling so confident now recently that all these things are are givens. It feels like some of them are being challenged at the minute. So I suppose I think that across the political spectrum, I think that actually the idea that these are the ingredients for a good life is a very unifying sense. I think the disagreement comes in the question of whose responsibility is it to achieve those things and how do you balance? So, you know, I would say most sensible people on left, right or centre would agree that you achieve these things with a combination of action from individuals, communities, businesses, government, civil society. But I think there is intense disagreement about particularly how big a role the government should take. And I think probably also about how far the government should create a framework that pushes business and employers to delivering some of these things. I think that is also where you get a lot of wrangling about where those lines are. And where do you think we are in in terms of that balance? Because you talk about the role of the state, employers and businesses, civil society, families and individuals. So almost working from the top down. And how do you judge the balance we currently have and where do you think it should be? That's a really interesting question. So I think one of the shifts, actually, I think that's happened in the last maybe five years ish has been a lot more coming together from left and right around the role of the government as a protector. So the idea that there is a kind of level below below which nobody should be able to fall and that it is right for government to play the leading role in preventing that. Now, our our actual policies are not doing a very good job. So I think in a sense, there's there's been a growing consensus that that is where we should be. But if you look at what's happened in policy terms over the last decade, what we've actually seen is Social Security. You know, I think it's seven out of the last 10 years. Benefits have been cut in some way. We've seen a real erosion of that safety net. And we've seen a kind of corresponding spike in deep poverty and destitution so that, you know, it's become quite clear that 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 part of our system is no longer protecting people against that. I think we've also seen part of the shift that I think we haven't we haven't come to terms with is in the labour market. 
I think that I don't think we've got the right balance at the moment in ter- uh, between protecting the security and rights of workers and flexibility. You know, we've got this growing group of workers at the bottom who are not only low paid, they're also on insecure contracts of different kinds. They've gone, they've got low hours and so on, and they're stuck. They're not getting training. They're not getting the chance to progress upwards. So I think that we need to tilt that. And actually with housing as well, what we've actually seen in the last 20 years, I would say, is government withdrawing from the housing market. So we kind of had Harold Macmillan back then. It was, you know, Conservative Prime Minister built this new wave of council houses. We then saw that kind of uh, sold through right to buy, Mm. which actually achieved giving many people the dream of home ownership who would never, ever have been able to have it. But at the same time, the government decided to get out of the business of providing low cost rented homes directly. And we're seeing the fallout from that now. We're seeing that in homelessness rates. We're seeing it in people stuck in the private rented sector facing unaffordable rents and the constant threat of eviction and living in cold, damp, unhealthy homes that they can't complain about because they'll get evicted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's a really interesting answer. Thank you. But, um I work quite a lot with councils and a lot of the listeners of this podcast are leaders in councils and they, I think, in a a sense, much more than central government, have an influence on all of those actors, you know, their role as the public sector body locally, the way they support businesses, the way they can support civil society, families, individuals. So a lot of councils are wrestling with how to make that balance themselves because there is the ability to have flexibility around that locally actually regardless of what's happening nationally so I thought that that was really interesting I'm going to read a little bit just from your conclusion here which I thought was incredibly powerful and I think will be really interesting to our listeners and it's about the link between between poverty and power and and powerlessness so Poverty is fundamentally about power and powerlessness. The workers with the least power can't avoid jobs that trap them in poverty. The least valuable consumers can't get the best best prices. Those without economic and social power are held back, ground down and exposed to public services that treat them at best as children or at worst as cogs in the machine. They don't have the economic power to avoid the social security system or buy better mental health treatment. They don't have the social power to assert their rights or persuade providers to behave with compassion. They don't have the political power to challenge stereotypes or change the direction of policy. And then the next paragraph is prejudice and discrimination strip away another layer of power, leaving disabled people, some black and minority ethnic groups and women with even fewer options and less leverage to change their situation. I just thought that that was an incredibly powerful piece of writing there and just summarised the entire situation we find ourselves in. So I guess my question is, do you think the people who need to really get this get it? I think it's a really interesting question because I realised when I was writing that, that having spent years writing about poverty and looking at policy, it's interesting how little we actually talk or think about those power dynamics. So when you're looking at, you know, what should a what's the right housing policy? Very often we we never talk about who has the power currently and where does the power need to sit. But that is the underpinning. I mean, I remember once being in a having a conversation with some quite senior level government officials um, and it was about benefits. It was about debt deductions. 
So a thing that I've been banging on about for years, I think it is literally years, is that within the benefit system, they can deduct money each week or month now from your payment to go directly to pay off debts. Most of those, in fact, all those debts are to the DWP itself or to utilities or, you know, public sector bodies, essentially. And when the work coaches are doing this, there is no standard tool they use to decide what is a reasonable debt deduction. So, you know, you take the charity step change, you ring them, they will go through an online tool that will help you work out what you can afford to pay, if anything. And it baffled, it has always baffled me that, you know, you wouldn't let a financial institution just deduct payments based on what an individual member of staff felt like. But that is essentially where we're at. So I was having this conversation and I was saying to these officials, surely you need to start incorporating a tool. And one of them said, no, no, it's fine because it's a it's a conversation between the work coach and the individual. And they can say when they don't think it's affordable. And we were having this conversation alongside some of the people we've been working with who have direct experience of the system. And so one of them said, hang on a minute, I've been in this situation. And when I was sitting in front of my work coach, I had 70p in my pocket. I would have signed absolutely anything to get the money because I had children to feed. And that really encapsulated me this kind of sense of the assumption from those at the centre of the system was that the people sitting in that room had some sort of equal power balance and could have a sensible grown up conversation about what was best. From the experience of the person who was on the wrong side of that desk in this system, she had absolutely no power. You know, she had no basis of which to say. And it's the same with work search requirements. It's the same. So that sense you have people in the system and it's partly going back to this idea of it being an industrial system. You know, Beveridge was writing this when the Ford factory was building their cars. And when you read the way that people talked about that system even the way someone like David Froy talked about it when he was involved in revamping it you do there's a phrase in David Froy's book he talks about job centers will will manage the volume business whilst uh, charities can do the more difficult bit and that phrase the volume business it's like yeah the system it's as if you're a widget and you're going to be moved along the system yeah yeah no I don't I think that was never right but even more so today when that's not the world, you know, we're all used to being consumers and we're part of networks and, you know, it doesn't feel right for today's world, but people are still stuck in that system. Work coaches are stuck in it as much as claimants in some ways. It really does feel just listening to you that you need to reach a certain level of comfort in your income to flip to being a consumer and somebody with choice and below a certain level it's done to you. Yeah, I think that's really right. And that was one of the other things when I reflected on how the the systems we have today were largely designed by rich white men, basically, because that was who was in charge. And, you know, they kind of many of them were very well-meaning, but you still it kind of still encodes this hierarchical view of kind of laying out what is going to be good for the lower classes and how they should be punished if they don't behave the way they should. And it is. You know, it it is, a, I think, a very parent-child relationship. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people experience working, getting services from charities or third-party organisations much more positively, because there is much less of that hierarchical parental type approach, and it is much more of an equal conversation. 
Yes, indeed. So very much linked to this, you and I are both commissioners on the Poverty Strategy Commission. So Philip Stroud has previously been on the podcast, but it was pre the launch of the commission, so we couldn't talk about it. So I'd love to just get you to describe what you think the commission is about. And really, the critical question is, what would a good outcome from the commission be? Yeah, so the Poverty Strategy Commission um it follows on a previous commission, which I was on with Philip Stroud, which was the Social Metrics Commission. And we put that together in uh, 20, God, either 16 or 18. Do you know, I really can't remember. Anyway, a few I'll years check, ago. I'll check, yeah. <laughs> so we put that together a few years ago. And the idea of that was that it was a, it was a time when we had had these arguments for years over how to measure poverty mm. and it has become a real distraction, actually. The debate about which was the best poverty measure was distracting from how we actually tackle poverty. And this was something that Philippa within government and me outside government had got increasingly frustrated about. So we put together a commission which included people from right and left and experts with no political affiliation to start with a blank sheet of paper, basically, and start with what exactly is this thing called poverty and what isn't it? And come up with a measurement framework, which took us about two and a half years, but we did, and it got very widespread support. One of the conversations we had in the sidelines was having seen how the relationships within that group evolved and how people who had started off really far apart had been able to work together to come actually to a a common view. Wouldn't it be great to try and do that with policy? You know, surely it should be possible to bring together people with different kinds of expertise and come up with. I mean, I always kind of think of it. Can we come up with a landing zone where we Mm. can agree on a, you know, a bunch of things that we really think would turn the tide on poverty, which any government of any colour would find something there that they could do that would be in tune with their philosophy and that would really help. And can we stress test each other's ideas? You know, we're all coming from different perspectives. That means we can do a kind of testing of things and really come to a a core of things that could then be pursued over the long term. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly really enjoying it and really enjoying working with you and and others on it. You're also supporting the policy and research programme for the Commission for Civil Society. I'm very interested in how local communities and the third sector in particular work in concert with the formal public sector. So let's talk about that a little bit. What's that commission trying to achieve? Yeah, so it's interesting, having kind of been a member of civil society for most of my career, it's been really interesting to me to actually spend some time studying it as a sector and thinking in a much more kind of structured way about, well, what is it and what does it do? and Why is it important and what gets in the way of it doing more? So now the the idea is that we have civil society, kind of charities, community groups, social enterprises, all that in this country who are actually integral to pretty much everything we try and do as a nation. So any area of public services, civil society is normally playing a pretty big part, either as a service provider or actually it's, its more distinctive role, I think, is as the kind of glue within communities. So civil society, it's kind of they are the often the ways in which we have relationships with one another. We come together to solve our own problems as communities 
that it's a fantastic source of insight if you're a public servant. You know, if you want to know what's going on the ground and what's working and what's not, then talking to your local charities is very often a great way to do it. But it doesn't it's in, it, 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 the sector tends to be, I think, overlooked and undervalued. So you see it in national data. It's very, you know, during the pandemic, we as in we as a country or as civil servants knew what was happening to the retail sector. We had incredibly granular, detailed, timely data. We had no idea what was going on for charities. You know, we I don't I think we still don't know how many employees from charities were furloughed. You know, completely basic questions that we don't because we don't have the data or it's locked up in formats you can't get to. And I think that's symptomatic of the way that the sector is overlooked. And you can see it in terms of policymakers, you know, nearly half of civil servants have had no engagement with the charity in the last year, according to some of our research. So they are missing out on an enormous amount of insight and expertise and ideas. They are. And I'm incredibly interested professionally in the role of civil society and the role of social enterprises and charities and mutuals in, in actually delivering delivering public services, um, I think I, I would imagine there's probably not widespread awareness of the critical role charities, social enterprises and mutuals and other forms of community interest companies play in actually delivering public services, including NHS services. There's a lot of community services provided by independent providers who, who are charities and social enterprises. So it's incredibly important. And one of the things that I really regret, actually, is that o- over the years there have been quite a lot of central government programs supporting civil society and they unfortunately have been some of the first things to get cut which i think is really counterproductive when we're thinking of reducing pressure on the nhs and, and a whole range of other things you know we often talk the poverty strategy commission about the wider determinants of health and you know the nhs i think there's there's a view that they only control about 20% of those and actually 80% of what makes somebody happy and healthy is far beyond the reach of of the NHS. So uh, I think that's incredibly important work that you're doing there as well. Um, So just thinking about some of the challenges that central government is facing, I don't know, given what what we said at the start of our conversation, um, you know, what, what are some of the specific challenges that central government is facing with regards to the cost of living crisis? So, I mean, the challenges for central government, I mean, it's, yeah, it's slightly hard to know where to start in some ways. So I think there is, in a sense, we've got maybe there's two dimensions. So you've got the very immediate crisis, which is very large numbers of people facing really high bills. And I think that that is challenging partly because, you know, within that, you've got about kind of seven million households at the bottom who are already having to go without essentials, they're behind on bills, they're getting in debt, they are the ones facing really extreme hardship. Mm. You've then got, though, a group of people in the middle who in normal times are okay, but they don't have the kind of uh, buffer which you need to continue to be able to live in you know, a normal way with the kind of high bills we're seeing. Then, of course, you've it's always worth naming. There's a group of people kind of upper middle and top who are fine. You know, yes, they may have to only have one foreign holiday, but they're going to be fine. So I think for the government, working out what is the right policy to cover these different groups is really difficult. And then you've also got the kind of wrinkle, in a sense, that 
there are going to be subgroups like people whose incomes are okay, but they happen to live in particularly energy inefficient houses. And so your overall policy could easily miss them. I think that's that's one of the things that has made it very hard for the government to design the best policy response. And then there's how long do you do it for? You know, we've kind of got the current government have said we're going to cap the unit costs for everybody for two years. It's far longer than anyone expected. Everyone thought it would be six months with a possible extension. They've gone for the big bang. Whether that survives will be interesting to see. But I think the reason that's related to the challenge, which is this is not short term. So you've got the war in Ukraine, which obviously is a very immediate crisis that may carry on for a long time. It may be resolved in some way. Even when it does those, actually, we were already seeing high inflation. You know, this inflation didn't just start with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It started long before that. And that is a different problem for a government. You know, a spike in inflation for a few months is very different to how do you do it? How do you deal with it when it's for a long time? I think you. so that's the kind of immediate thing. But you've then got a second thing, which is about longer term resilience. So the fact that one of the reasons we were so exposed both to the pandemic and to this is because we had eroded our public services. We had eroded the support people relied on. And that creates serious vulnerabilities. Mm. So, again, you know, in a context where you're having to spend a lot of money dealing with an immediate crisis, how do you also deal with the underlying lack of resilience? Yeah. Um, And there's some no brainer things like we should be you know, charging ahead with energy efficiency measures, which for some reason we haven't really. We should be charging ahead with renewables and nuclear, which, again, we haven't really been doing particularly well. There are some of those things. But I think for me, that's the hardest thing. It's the short term crisis and long term resilience doing both of those. I think yeah. it's challenging. It is challenging. And I don't think anybody is suggesting that this is an easy challenge for the government to respond to. So that that's national government. What about local government? Is it is it different? Are they, is it the same set of challenges? I mean, you mentioned at the end there energy efficiency, that's really, councils have a big role there. But just more generally speaking, in terms of the cost of living crisis, what what sort of things do you think councils need to be focusing on? So I think for councils, you know, they are always in the front line, aren't they? It's kind of whatever, whatever the policy framework is, they will be picking up the pieces. I mean, I think obviously the biggest challenge facing councils is they've had the most enormous budget cuts in the last 10 years. But they are facing a higher level of demand across the board than anybody will have seen. I mean, the thing that I think is really frightening for a lot of people, both in and outside councillors, councils, is how much will they be able to do outside their statutory duties? That's the fear that I'm hearing from an awful lot of people is given there are certain statutory duties, the level of the finance squeeze. What are they just going to not be not be able to do? And that's really frightening. It's extremely frightening. There are. A huge number of councils now are borrowing a lot. They are running serious deficits. They cannot get enough social workers on to do those statutory tasks. Those, I mean, I will not call it nice to have things, but non-statutory, let's call it that, things that they might do in different times to support people. They just really don't have the resource for it. So it's an incredibly challenging time for local authorities, and they are very worried. Leaders are anxious and are can probably picture the faces of the people whose services they will have to cut 
Um, so, so what's your view on devolution when we're thinking about local delivery, you know, councils, combined authorities? Um, and are, are they better placed to deal with some of these challenges? Like, do we really need more devolution? So, I, I mean, I think that with devolution, I come at it partly from a, almost an issue basis. So I think kind of area by area, you need to think about what is going to be the most effective geography to design and deliver a service. So, for instance, if you take skills, it's always seemed to me that the right geography to have setting skills policy is a kind of functional labour market. So skills is something that I, you know, I definitely think should be devolved down to combined authorities or mayors or whatever arrangements, because actually you want your skills provision designed in a way that's tailored to your local labour market. And you want your economic development team thinking about what areas are we trying to grow? What is going to deliver good quality jobs? And then putting in the skills and the other kind of the transport, all those other services. So I think it is in many ways devolving down that kind of thing. I think just it seems to me a bit of a no brainer. It just makes sense. It makes a huge amount of sense to me as well. I just I feel for local areas at the minute because they are at the mercy of national policy as well. So things have moved from the more towns focused leveling up agenda now to these enterprise zones and local councils are now having to having just finished putting in bids for leveling up funding are now having to put their their bid in to be an enterprise zone it just seems to be one one bid after another and they don't really have the capacity to be doing this and whilst they're doing that who's doing all the other stuff that they're supposed to be doing so they're under a huge amount of pressure yeah and I mean, that is one of the the kind of knock on effects, isn't it, to the instability we've seen. So we seem to be in a period of history where we're just getting lots and lots of really big events, you know, the kinds of yeah. yearly elections or other crises. Yeah. And I think one of the knock on effects is the constant renewal of the policy agenda and how that then goes down to the people who actually have to administer and implement it. Yeah. And that's an international phenomenon as well. I mean, yeah. if you look internationally, we've got in an awful lot of places, you've got short lived governments, you've got populist movements rising and falling. Yeah. We've got the kind of relationships between democratic nations feeling quite shaky. So I think, yeah, so it yeah. Does, it feels as if we're part of. And of course, to some extent, you can, we, were talking, we started off talking about big shifts. One of the big shifts we're seeing is obviously climate change. Yeah. And I think. We in this country, I think we probably underestimate the level of instability that that is going to give rise to as it, you know, continues to kind of the effects continue to be seen. Yeah. So, you know, the impact of climate change related migration and and the kind of the impact on the world economy, I think, is going to be far bigger than a lot of us have quite got to grips with. I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think this is another area where I think some local government areas are grasping that more effectively than national government, perhaps, and they, they do have quite a lot of the levers. Um, the final thing I want to talk to you about here was um, you, you talked earlier about the work on the, the Poverty Strategy Commission and before that the, the Social Metrics Commission and the need to build coalitions to get things done. So when you and I have previously spoken, we've talked about how the world has become very binary and particularly when judging whether a person is 
quote, our type of person or not. And if the judgment is that they are not, then they are not to be engaged with and, if possible, wholly discredited. For me, that's a recipe for never getting anything done. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. So I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of a big believer that you can not only get on with, but have a genuine respect for people with whom you disagree vehemently about almost everything. Um, And that, you know, every part of the political spectrum, you have people who are, you know, genuinely want to improve people's lives, genuinely have good ideas. You know, I don't think any one bit of the political spectrum has a monopoly on either morality or innovation but i think and i find it worrying when you see people dismiss someone they disagree with as if they're evil Mm. because i do think it's partly i just think it's wrong but also i think it reduces the space we have to come up with ideas that will have any kind of longevity and you know and, and i found you know working with people in the social metrics commission and the poverty strategy commission and actually other things i've done you know you can find really areas where you really can have common ground and just accept there'll be a bunch of other things that you disagree with. And that's actually OK. Exactly. I think that last point is the bit which really strikes home for me. We're all complex individuals. We're all complex human beings. And, you know, we we may, you may, I may disagree with somebody about something really important to me, but actually in a completely different sphere, really be on the same page. And I think that you're absolutely right. For any sort of sustainable progress to be made, you have to work with people on whom there may be things that you don't agree on. My last question then, and this is something I ask all, all of the guests on the podcast, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a, or in a charity or in policy making who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? OK, Um. so I, I don't know if it's particularly useful advice, but always remember you might be wrong is actually something that, I think that is useful advice yeah that, that yeah there is just something for me the more I learn about any topic the more you realize how much you don't know and you know there have been plenty of things over the years where I've been absolutely convinced about something and then have been turned around by either experience or somebody who's just cleverer and better informed than me and yes I think never assume that you have either the answer or the whole answer I think that's really valuable but that you do still get these hero leaders who feel they have to be right about everything. And if they feel that they might not be right about something, they'll still just double down on it. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've time for. And I've really enjoyed the conversation, Helen. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. I've loved, loved it too. Well, I've taken an absolute ton of notes after that conversation. The thing which really strikes me is that the last two and a half years of the pandemic has exposed and exacerbated what was already there, the levels of deprivation. People who were struggling are now struggling even more, and people who were powerless are now even more powerless. And I think we need a proper conversation at a national level that focuses on how we address this and what is the role of the state, what is the role of national government, local government, but then also what is the role of businesses, employers, civil society, families, 
We're not having this debate at the moment, and I think Helen's book sets the scene wonderfully well, and I think anybody interested in this, whether they're working at a local level or a national level in policy making or working in the third sector, really should read it. And I also hope that the work of the Poverty Strategy Commission will really help with this. The second point I want to make is around budgets and public service spending. Even without the mini-budget, public service budgets were already under huge pressure due to inflation. Now, my big concern, and I think Helen shares this, is that the pressure will fall on councils. And there's a lot of talk about defence being protected, about core NHS spending being protected. But I do fear that councils, as usual, will be asked to bear the brunt. And just so everyone's clear, we're talking about adult social care, children's social care, essential services that support vulnerable people. And I just don't think that is a good place to start. Now, I know we need to grow the economy and a successful economy is essential for sustainable public services. That's that's a given. I support that. But timing is everything. I think if the mini budget has taught us anything, it's that timing is incredibly important. And the idea that the pandemic and its impact has somehow passed and we can rush back to being in a different situation is for the birds. The impact of the pandemic on vulnerable people, vulnerable families, vulnerable individuals will be felt for years to come. And public services will be essential, both in order to support those people to have any sort of quality of life, but also to support the economy. The economy needs people working in it. And actually, we need more people coming into work to support the economy. So cutting public services at this time, particularly council services that provide that incredibly important local support, is is crazy. But look, I'm also not forgetting my first point, which was about the balance of what the state does versus businesses, civil society, families, etc. So, you know, I get that there is no magic money tree. So we do need to have a proper debate about how we emerge as gracefully as possible from the pandemic and support the most vulnerable along the way. So that's all we have time for this episode. And thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And don't forget to follow on LinkedIn or Twitter so you never miss a future episode. 